On February 2nd, 2011, 18-year-old Moises Mraz Espinosa got into a fight with his mother. He put on music by the band King Diamond, grabbed a cord, and strangled her. He then dismembered her body in the shower, cutting her into hundreds of pieces, removing her fingers and toes, putting the pieces into a freezer in the living room, and peeled the skin off of her skull, into which he carved upside-down crosses and carried around in a backpack for the next two days. He then confessed to his cousin what he had done and turned himself into the authorities. Two years later, he was put on trial for murder, and that's where I come in. I'm stand-up comedian Matt Walker, and I was on the jury for the trial. This is the story of the murder of Amelia Espinoza as told by me, juror number eight. Hello, and welcome back to the Juror Number 8 podcast. I am Matt Walker, and with me is my good friend Stephen Glickman. Oh my god, why am I here for this? <laughs> I just had a nightmare a couple hours ago, and now yeah. I have to live through this one. I mean, this is terrifying now, stuff, this is, man. This is our second day of recording episodes. The first three we all recorded on one day about a month ago. And now we're coming back to it. And since then, you've been watching the Ted Bundy tapes. Yeah, I watched the Ted Bundy tapes, and they were terrifying. But I, I kind of, I know this is going to sound f- fucked up to say this, but it's like after doing the show with you, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I, I, you know, I've been waiting to hear more, mm-hmm. you know. And then, and so then I started watching some of these like you know documentaries about like murderers and you know like crime like true crime mm-hmm. stuff and uh and and now i've watched like a bunch i've watched i, like, I got a you bunch. into it you kind of got me into it but it's giving me nightmares <laughs> like my you're like, welcome yeah like like i'm interested but i'm mm-hmm. also a, horrified a, a horrified a, yeah. by it yeah mm-hmm. is that is that happened to people that's an understandable and the correct way of feeling about it to be horrified by it. You don't yeah. want to be somebody who's like into it and just not like turned on it. by it. Yes, that yeah, would be bad. No, no, no. It's weird. It's yeah. weird, but it is fascinating. And uh, just a couple quick corrections. I, I since I listened back and put out the first three episodes, I do have a couple quick corrections. Are they grammar corrections? No. You oh. said your instead of your. <laughs> <laughs> instead of days of your, it should have yeah. been days of you are. No. I said that he turned himself in in Maywood. While the crime happened in Maywood, he turned himself in in Huntington Park. Mm. We had talked about bail a little bit, and you asked whether he would have been able to go out on bail. And I said, oh, well, O.J. Simpson was out on bail. O.J. Simpson was not out on bail during his trial. I don't know why I thought that one. There have been other murder suspects who uh, have been on trial, and they were out on bail the entire time. But O.J. was not one of them. Right, 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 right. So I just wanted to clear that up in case anybody's listening and they were like, that's not right. I strive for accuracy. Also, all of this is being told from my memory five years later from the trial. So Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are some details that I'm getting wrong. I would not be surprised by that. Uh, But I have a pretty good memory. Your memory is excellent. Mm-hmm. It's an ex. You have an excellent memory. Thank it's you. one of the things ab- that I can count on when it comes to you. Is me remembering you your remembering, bits? Yeah, you remembering <laughs> my bits. You yes. remembering things that I don't remember anymore. Yeah, you're like, oh, I'm going on this show tomorrow. What should I talk about? Like, well, you should tell the story about blah blah blah, and you're like, oh, I forgot that even happened. Yeah, like you, you try. You just brought up a, a thing that happened at, that we when we went to Knott's Berry Farm, mm-hmm. but that was how long ago is that? That's 
Eight years ago? More. It could be. It's probably more. Probably 10 years ago? Yeah. Probably 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's get back to it. So where we left off on the last episode was we had seen the beginnings of the trial. There was opening statements. We'd seen uh, a couple witnesses, one being his cousin who had testified that he had confessed to her, one being the lead detective on the case who went to the crime scene and showed us a bunch of photos. The satanic expert who came in. Mm -hmm. We talked a little bit about the computer guys who came in, told us all about what the stuff he had on his hard drive. One thing I left off there when I was listening back was they did have evidence of the searches he made on the internet at the time. And he was searching on things like human sacrifice and some of those terms. Like he'd search for those. He'd also search for a lot of things that were the lyrics of King Diamond songs because he was obsessed with King Diamond. And it's got to feel weird to be like in the band King Diamond, right? A little bit? Yeah, probably to have a guy who's like your number one fan turn out to be this guy. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty weird. But the thing that sort of strikes me about that is like, I realize that I've Googled Cannibal Corpse lyrics because you can't understand the people in these bands. I have no idea what they're saying. Sure. So I have Googled lyrics to Dismembered and Molested mm. or Necropedophile. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> you know, like like songs like that where you're like, oh, what did they say? And then you look it up, you're like, oh, yeah, okay, well, that's terrible, but they kind of growl cool, so that's why I keep listening. Sure. Well, hey, you know, everyone makes choices. <laughs> Some of them bad, uh, yeah. like being on this podcast with me. Yeah, maybe. Um, so we'd, we'd seen those witnesses. One thing I have been asked by people who are just friends is they've asked, what are some of the most horrible things that I saw? When I talked about the worst photo on the last episode, but another one that sort of sticks with me is I remember there was like a detective and he's wearing gloves and he's holding up a toe mm. for the camera. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, was it wasn't. A, it was a toe connected to a foot connected to a body. It was a toe. Oh, just a toe. That had been cut off of her foot, which was cut off of her body. Right, Um, right, of course. So when you see something like that, it's not as graphically horrific as some of the other things I I saw, but it's a thing where you look at it and you're just like, that doesn't belong. It's not supposed to be separate, right? Right, yeah. (laughs) Like it is the one that really stuck out to me where just seeing somebody hold up a big toe really was creepy. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that is very creepy. Some of the other shots we saw of, like, the crime scene, there's just a hunk of flesh. I don't know what part of the body it's from. It's like it just, the skin had been peeled off and the bones were removed. So it's just like a big hunk of meat, basically. Right, right, And right. that's but, a different thing like to look at. But something like that is very visceral. Like, it, you immediately, you go, oh, I have a toe. Yeah. You know, you like you immediately relate it back to yourself. That could be my toe. Just Yeah, and, and seeing those, you're like, okay, that's not normal yeah that's bad yeah Yeah, that's real bad i don't think i've mentioned this on the podcast yet but they're talking about all this stuff about you know removing the fingers and toes Mm -hmm. the satanic aspects and all that kind of stuff and one thing that i do remember being thinking was kind of odd his defense attorney i think it was his ring finger it, it was it was one of his fingers he was missing the last joint on his finger on one of his hands. The defense attorney? The defense attorney. Yeah. It's yeah. weird. I remember after the fact, you know, talking to friends, and they're like, well, was that some, is he like a satanic attorney and he sacrificed part of his finger? And I'm like, no, no, he's just a regular attorney who just was missing part of his finger. But that's pretty weird, though. It's like when all the stuff is coming up about removing the fingers and toes, and then you look over, and then the next guy to ask questions of the guy talking about removing fingers and toes is missing part of his finger. It sort of stands out. Yeah, that does stand out. That's pretty fucking weird. Yeah. Yeah, that's super That's super weird. Yeah. So we'd seen the detectives and they'd come in and they get to the point where they come around and they say, okay, prosecution, they rest their case. 
they, they'd called their witnesses. They'd called his father. I, I don't think I talked about his, his father's testimony, but they did his call his father. His father was there? Well, his father was there every day watching the trial from his son's side of the courtroom we talked about. But his father was there, and they called him up to the stand, and they asked him questions about, you know, what had he been told by Moises? What was his state of mind? All that kind of stuff. Um, you know, his relationship with Amelia. It wasn't anything that was really pertinent to the act itself. Mm. I do believe, if I remember correctly, that Moises had gone to eat with his father after he'd killed his mother at some point in the next couple of days. He'd gone to eat with his father and then just had like a normal breakfast or something. I, I could be wrong about the timing on that, but I know there was like a, a breakfast that he talked about where like he was how, talking to his son. How was his father <laughs> even in the same building as the, as his son that killed his well, his ex-wife uh, and put her head in a backpack like I, how do, I, how do you how would you even deal with being in the same room as a person like that i think that there is some mental aspect i'm sure a psychiatrist or psychologist could explain a lot better than i could as a layperson but i think there's something that happens where an act can be so horrific that you simply can't believe that somebody did it no matter what the circumstances like, no matter how much evidence you're shown, you might just say, well, no, that's that's not the person that I know. Right. And I think that might be part of what's going on here in this case. Yeah, it seems possible. To where it's just, it's it's beyond the realm of something that he could imagine his son doing. Well, like that, the te- like Ted Bundy's mom mm-hmm. was, at, it was in the courtroom when they announced that he was getting the electric chair. And she was like, oh, my poor son. Yeah. He was the, he's the most wonderful boy and he's innocent. <laughs> yeah. And like all the way to the end is like, he's innocent. He's a sweet, he's a sweet boy. They have the wrong kid, you know, and mm-hmm. you're like. Like that's that's f- fucking bananas. I told once to I once asked my mom if I killed somebody like what she would do, and she was like, "I would turn you in yeah. right, right away. I would turn you in." And that's like uh, in, in Seinfeld. Seinfeld asked Kramer, "He's like, hey, hey, if I killed somebody, would you turn me in?" And Kramer's like, "Yes." He's like, "Well, what kind of friend are you turning me in for murder?" And he's like, well, "What kind of friend are you going around killing people?" Yeah, <laughs> you know? I to- I know. I I I totally get it. I totally yeah. get it. Yeah, I I would turn you in if you killed somebody. Yeah, well, I, I totally yeah. would. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, that's... It's just who I am. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> so, stop your murdering, sweetie. All, right. All this testimony had gone on, and it took about four days or so of testimony, mm. I want to say, across the trial. So, like, you know, you get three or four people on on the stand per day, and they'd called a couple different police officers. They called the cousin. They called the father. They called the satanic expert. They called, uh, you know, a number of people to come up and testify about the case. They called, I think there was a, a coroner, a crime scene kind of person there that talked about the injuries to show that how they knew that she had been strangled before she was dismembered and all that stuff. And they, they talked about when you strangle someone about the length of time it takes for them to die, mm. like how long it takes for them to become unconscious, how long it takes for them to die. And I remember it was about 90 seconds to two minutes, they said, that it probably takes to strangle someone to death. Um, they probably pass out after 20 to 30 seconds. And then when you keep going is when you kill them. So the prosecution says we rest our case. And then the defense gets up and they say, your honor, we have no witnesses. We rest our case. Oh, you're like, okay. Like I was expecting to see something more than that, but that's just how it played out. And then I think that was the end of the day. So we came back the next day and they did the closing arguments. Right. 
And that's where, as I mentioned, like the opening arguments is like the intro paragraph to an essay in college. This is like the concluding paragraph where you tell us what you just told us, right? So you start off, you tell us what you're going to tell us, you tell us, and then you tell us what you just told us. That's sort of how a book ended. The prosecution came out, and I remember when she started hers, there were other people from the DA's office that came to watch. And they, they popped in occasionally, and I, I could just sort of, I, I assume they were from the DA's office because they were always people in suits. And everyone that the Los Angeles district attorney hires was the most beautiful and handsome people I've ever seen in my entire life. Wow. <laughs> like they, we know a lot of beautiful people who are actors, right? Yeah. Actors and actresses. The, these people were on par with them in terms wow. of attractiveness. And it was like, they must only hire really good looking people. Cause like you look over and it's like, Oh, that guy's an Abercrombie model. What's he doing here? Watching the, <laughs> watching the trial. Wow. Really? And then it's just like a really handsome dude in a suit. And then, oh, it's just a beautiful woman in a business suit. Everyone that was in the watching it was very attractive, which stood out. Um, now, let me ask you this. Uh, mm-hmm. How long were you uh, in, involved in this whole thing? It's about nine days total. Okay, so you know how like uh, if you work in an office, right, um, you start finding people that work in the office attractive, mm-hmm. even though they're. If you saw them in, in nor, if you ran into them normally at the gas station, you would not be attracted yeah. to this person, uh, to these people. But but you know, like you spend enough time at a comedy club, you're gonna be like, that girl's pretty hot. You know, like that's yeah. just how how it mm-hmm. is, right? So let me ask you this: uh, uh, Are you sure that these people were attractive? <laughs> Or is it that it just, you just hung out with a bunch of fugly ass people in your in your jury box, and then these uh, mildly attractive people showed up, and you're like, "Oh my God, the supermodels are here! Is that possible? Is that a, is there a chance? Anything is possible." Okay, but I stand by my assessment that they are very attractive people that the DA's office hires. I, I think that's my theory. Uh, all right, all right, yeah, uh, all right. I'll, so I'll the district attorney she started her closing statement off by saying, you guys have heard a lot about the band King Diamond. Because they kept bringing up King Diamond, King Diamond, King Diamond, all throughout the thing. Because King Diamond's logo is the upside down cross, which is what he carved into her skull. He had like drawn it in sheets of paper. They had uh, some sketches they showed us that he'd made while he was in prison awaiting trial. I mean, it was like him like drawing satanic looking things with upside down crosses or whatever. So they kept talking about King Diamond because that was his logo. And she's like, well, you've heard a lot about King Diamond. I think it's time for you to hear some King Diamond and then she plays some King Diamond music for us and you know it's it's metal right mm-hmm. and I'm listening to it and I'm like yeah this band kind of rocks but I can't do anything to sh- I'm not going to start headbanging because there's a judge over there that yeah. does not mess around as we've discussed yeah, so you have to idea. just sit there and just take it in mm-hmm. it's probably the did least it, reaction King Diamond's ever gotten did, did the did the guy that was on trial kind of give you a look mm-hmm. like yeah you know you know, <laughs> no, you know. did no. he? He doesn't like, look at people going, "Yeah, you know, you know, this is good." I don't think in the entire time, I don't think he ever looked once at the jury. Wow, he looked straight ahead like the entire time. I can't remember him ever looking our way, maybe once, but I know we never made eye contact or anything like that. It just wow. didn't happen. Amazing. I, I think he'd been coached by his defense attorney to not do anything to initiate contact in any sort of way, visually, body language, not do anything aside from just look ahead, and that's it. I think that's probably what he was told to do. Interesting. Yeah, and that's what he did. Okay. Um, So she does that, then she recaps the whole thing. She says, okay, we found the Satanic Bible, we found Satanic drawings, we found blood all over, there was a body, it was in this unplugged freezer, 
you know, it had been dismembered, fingers and toes removed, skin peeled off the skull, skull in a backpack, the whole deal, right? Went through the whole thing again. So she spent like two hours recapping the entire case. Like it was like a lengthy. This is the prosecutor? Thing. Prosecutor doing her closing argument. Okay, so why did she play the music? What was her point of doing that? I think to shock us in some way. I think she felt that with the people that were in the jury, I'm pretty sure I'm the only one that likes heavy metal out of the 12 people that were in the jury. I think that was intended to drive home. She's like, this is what he was listening to when he killed and dismembered his mother. And I think it was to like put us in, his, in the his mind. In there. But you know, sometimes when you, when you write, they say, you know, put, put a viewer in by invoking their senses you want to describe the sights and the smells and the sounds. And I think right. that's that's what she was trying to do was, you know, put us in that room. Was he blaming King Diamond? Or was no. that So that wasn't part of it. It no. wasn't like the Marilyn Manson thing. No, the, like, process, oh. the defense never really brought it up. The only things the defense ever really brought up were, uh, I remember they did ask the cousin about the religion Santeria, that that had come up a little bit where they were asking, you know, what does she know about alternate religions and things like that? Mm. Uh, and, and she said that she had been in Santeria and he'd done some Santeria too, which is kind of like a hybrid between voodoo and Catholicism. Oh, I don't know. I, yeah. yeah. All right. So she does her whole thing, recaps the whole the whole deal, plays some King Diamond for us, and then the defense comes out and he makes his argument. And I think the defense attorney did about as good a job as you can have with this case. What, what would he say? So he came up and his argument was prosecution said they were going to prove that my client murdered his mother as part of a satanic ritual and then cut up her body. They said they would prove it. I'm telling you they haven't proven it beyond a reasonable doubt. And here's why. And then he tried to poke some holes in their, in their stories. Like, well, they have no evidence. There's no witness that says that he did it. There's nobody that heard him do it. There is no proof that anyone had seen him. All they have is this kid who was a little unhinged because of his girlfriend dying a couple months before and then he wound up confessing to this crime but we don't know that he did it maybe somebody else did it and he was just so off at his own world because of his mental state that now he thinks that he did it and that sort of seemed to be the argument they came with was that they were like implying that he either did not do it or did not act alone if he did do it but didn't he confess with his mother's head in a backpack uh well he didn't have the head in a backpack with him the backpack was at the house, but uh, he did confess to four different people that we heard about. Uh, but did he walk himself into the... Police? His cousin took him to a sheriff's office, right. and he walked in and said, I killed my mother. So that doesn't qualify you as pleading guilty, that you still have to plead guilty. Correct. Guilt and innocence is something determined by the courts. You can say, I did something to a cop, and it doesn't mean you did it. You're not found immediately guilty. There's a legal process you have to go through. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So had he pled not guilty? Yes. Oh, interesting. That's why there was a trial. Um, got it. Was got because it. Yeah, because if mean, you would, yeah. It makes you sense. Basically, you have three options when you plea. You can plead guilty, no contest, or not guilty. What's the what's the So guilty is yeah, you're saying, I admit that I did this. And I'll take whatever punishment you give me, right? right? No contest says, I am saying I didn't do it, but I will accept the punishment that you give me as if I was pleading guilty because I don't want to go through a trial. And then not guilty is saying, I didn't do this. Those are your sort of three options. Interesting. 
no contest is rarely invoked, is my understanding. And there's there are some other options. They have this thing called an Alford plea and things like that that are other offshoots of these things. But those are sort of the three main things that people plead. And it's almost always, I would say, almost always people come in and they plead not guilty initially. And then they talk to a defense lawyer. A lot of times they'll try to work a plea deal. And in fact, I think most cases wind up being pled out of the court system where there's not a trial for most of them, where they say, okay, we're accusing you of DUI. We have this evidence of you doing DUI. But if you plead guilty to reckless driving and this goes on your record and you take this class, then we'll let it be just that. And then people will plead to that, right? So that kind of stuff goes on all the time. Oh, wow. So anyway, so he had pled not guilty, and that's why there was a trial, and they Got went through it. this okay. whole process. All right, I understand. So the, the defense, basically their argument is just saying, hey, they said they would prove this beyond a reasonable doubt, and I say they didn't do it. Got it. So they did that. Why don't we end up this episode here now, and in the next episode, we'll talk about deliberations and verdict. Oh, sure. Um, which has some interesting stuff in there. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to the Journal Number 8 podcast, and uh, we'll be back soon. You bet. Oh, God. <laughs>